0: Welcome, my friends. We got a really fun show for you today. Our guest is Sajid Rahman, managing partner of MyAsia VC, an early stage venture fund, and the co founder and CEO of Digital Healthcare Solutions. In today's episode, we talk with someone who's made over 1,400 angel investments. Yeah, you heard that right. Sajid shares his journey of breaking into the VC world and then dives into what he's excited about today. He touches on areas like Africa, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and explains what makes each place unique. Then he explains why he's bullish on fintech, logistics, and edtech, and shares some of his investments he's optimistic about today. As we wind down, Sajid shares why he's especially keen on Web3 companies coming out of India. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. WhyChart's report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCHART's comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCHART's professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them MEB sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with my Asia VC's Sajid Rahman. Sajid, welcome to the show. Thanks, Meb. It's a pleasure. It's awesome to hang out with you all the way across the world. Tell our listeners, where do we find you today?
1: I'm in Indonesia, the capital city in Jakarta.
0: I was joking with you before this, so coffee for you in the morning. I'm in Los Angeles, normally would be some wine or beer for me. We have a beautiful family of birds outside my window, which listeners may be able to pick up. One of my favorite podcasts we once did from Hawaii, where there was a bunch of roosters throughout the entire show. So it gives a little color. (laughs) <laughs> What's the vibe like there right now? You've been there for a while. I know you've lived in a lot of different places. How long have you been in Jakarta?
1: Oh, for a while, actually. Almost nine years now. As a city, it's opening up. The COVID restrictions are almost over. You don't need to do quarantine anymore if you travel here. So, yeah, life is getting back to normal. Cafes are full.
0: Restaurants are full. Where were some of the stops prior? I know some of the answers, but tell the listeners, where are some of the places you lived all around the world?
1: Spent uh, quite a bit of time in Africa. So I was based out of Lagos, Nigeria, managing the West Africa, so in different countries in Africa, sometime in the Middle East, and of course, in Bangladesh, where I'm from.
0: Awesome. So we're going to talk all things startup investing. It's so fun at this sort of day and age. One of the reasons I was pestering you to be on the show was we joke we have a lot of some of the top startup investors all over the world have been on the show in certain deals and characteristics show up from I think a lot of the best ones and you were new to me but kept presenting a lot of unique and different investment opportunities and we've invested together on a handful now in companies all over the place and so I'm excited to welcome you today but if I have this right and you may have to correct me you weren't always an angel investor right a banker once upon a time what was the origin story for you so,
1: I started in banking, and which essentially took me to Africa and all these countries. So, I was part of an international bank. It's a British bank, but they mostly focus on emerging markets. So, while they're trading at FTSE, most of their money they make either in Asia or Africa. That took me to all these places. The bank brought me to Indonesia, where I'm based now. But then I left banking and the telco company. It's a Norwegian telco, again, big in the emerging markets. So, they hired me to build a global health business. A lot of these telcos are struggling to make money from their core business, which is providing infrastructure, trying to build digital layer on top of those telco networks. The company, Telenor, has done some big businesses in financial services in markets like Myanmar and Pakistan. So they wanted me to build a health business in Bangladesh. So I was hired to do that. So obviously, I left banking, built a digital health business, which is actually quite scale. It currently serves 5 million people. It's a very really large healthcare business also uh, one of the largest health insurance book. But I have been investing on the side for the past six, seven years. And that's what I now do full-time.
0: How'd the investment journey start? People kind of arrive at this destination in different ways. We've kind of very publicly chronicled my journey here. how did it start for you? Was it public company stocks or your college roommate come up to you and said, you know what, I got this great opportunity, invest in my Bollywood film or my restaurant down the street or What was the initial foray for you into this world?
1: Yeah, it was sort of like an accidental investor. So when I was with the bank, a couple of young guys, they approached me. They wanted to build a fintech business, comparison sites, one of those places where you go and get different comparison of credit cards and you decide which one to buy and et cetera. They needed some advisor. So they were launching in Indonesia. They wanted someone to advise them to navigate the regulatory landscape, how to talk with the central bank and all those stuff. So I decided to help them out. I joined as an advisor. And six months down the line, they were raising a round. And they said, be willing to invest. I wrote my first personal check. Now, that was my first angel investment. What is interesting is there were other people on the cap table who have been doing it for a while. So they showed me the rope. So that, oh, if you're interested in dangerous investment, you need to do this many companies. This is where you can find deals and stuff like that. So that's how the whole thing started.
0: That's a pretty traditional path, I feel like, and a thoughtful path. I think getting involved, whether it's operational or sweat equity, is a way that kind of gets you into the world. We talk a lot about the access is much more ubiquitous at this point versus 10 years ago versus 20 years ago. You might have been able to join one of these like angel investing clubs or work at a VC. Other than that, unless it's like your college buddy, like you probably didn't see as many. But now, particularly with List and sites like it, it's opening up a whole new world of opportunity. All right, so I think I've invested with you about half a dozen, dozen deals, somewhere in that 10 range, pretty eclectic grouping. But tell the audience, what is sort of like your framework? What are you looking for? What's the general investment philosophy that's sort of your opportunity set?
1: I think two things, which probably, as someone who has been part of my syndicate, you probably have noticed that my deal flows are pretty much all over the world. I'm based in Indonesia, but I'm bringing this from Africa to Latin and, of course, from Asia and then U.S. I'm broadly agnostic of the geography. In fact, I think there are more opportunities in these markets than the traditional markets where we are more accustomed to invest. So that's one. Second, I operate from this philosophy that all countries are on the same digitization curve, but at different points. It is sometimes quite astonishing for me. So I talk with a founder in India. In the morning, and then I talk with another founder in Asia or in Africa, and they're all building the same business. Probably the similar business model has already been proved in US. So one of the mental models that I use is that, has this model already been proven? Am I only taking an execution risk rather than a business model risk? So that I have found it quite helpful in investing in the emerging markets. The second thing, of course, as we have always seen, some of these valuation is a bit out of whack compared to the traction. Sometimes I do invest, I do bring in companies in the syndicate where the valuation may be, it sometimes is overvalued, than the traction, but I think given the potential and everything. So, but I try to recalibrate that, whether the valuation makes sense. So that would be the second model. And the third one, of course, is the traditional, the founder set. So when I'm talking with the founders, one of the things is that I have now invested through list, through other people's syndicate directly. It's almost like 1,400 companies.
0: 1,400?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You officially have the record because I asked this question on Twitter maybe like a year ago because listeners may be spitting out their drink, listening to this (laughs) or laughing like I did. However, so I'm like around 320 or 30, been investing since about 2014. But you hit upon something that to me is, we've said this before, it's not a unique insight, but it is a critical insight, which is... You need to have a certain amount of breath, certain amount of shots on goal to be able to capture this world. And so I actually think you have the record. Fabrice (laughs) Grenda, I think, was close to a thousand. Calicanus was in the hundreds. I mean, some of the platforms, certainly. That's definitely the record. I love it. That's awesome, man.
1: (laughs) What happens is when you invest in that level of companies, you tend to develop what do you call it? Gut fill when you talk with founders. And that, of course, always helps. So those are the sort of the tools I use.
0: I think it's right, man. The amount of pattern recognition and what we tell a lot of listeners when they're particularly getting started, I said, you should start to just read every deal memo possible. You start to pick up on the good, the bad, the missing, the exaggerated, the interesting and on and on. And I mean, I think I've reviewed something like 6,000 deal memos at this point. But you start to also pick up some pretty interesting signals and not just from investing, but also things you can incorporate. My team is so sick of me saying this at this point, almost every day, certainly once a week, I'll send a message on Slack or email. and be like, have you guys seen this? Maybe we can incorporate this da da da, this SaaS company into our company, or have you used this personally? Like on and on. I have like products over here that are sitting here that I've like been trying, make everyone in my family try. They're consistently kind of grossed out by some ideas but I think it's a very thoughtful approach. And so wait, what is the timeline like spread on this? I assume this wasn't all in one year. How far has this been spread around? So I
1: started investing in 2014. So roughly 8 years or so.
0: Yeah, man. Well, all right, well you and I came to the plate at the same period. All right. So you know, it's funny the two though, and I think this to me is one of the reasons I was attracted to you and what you're up to. I look back and I had someone go run all the numbers on the portfolio that I've invested in. And I said, location, gender, founders, where they're from, every possible statistic. And I don't know if it's three of the top five, but it's, I mean, like 75% are US-based companies for me. But I think three of the top five on paper, still, of the best performers were non-US. And part of that was due to the, and I don't know if this will continue for indefinitely, but- more reasonable valuation starting points, or just that the opportunity is things where people weren't looking. Like how have you felt the global viewpoint has evolved over the past eight years? Are those things you've seen? Has it changed? What's kind of the lay of the land for looking all global and international?
1: Two things. I think first of all, the so called emerging market or markets within especially within Asia and Latin, I mean nowadays in Africa. Pretty much you can name any top tier fund, they're all here. So there's a lot of money coming in into this space across markets. So I think the valuation is, of course, as a factor of that, is inking up, which when I started this thing seven, eight years back, the valuation was much more palatable, so to speak. That's one. In terms of the growth of some of these companies, just to probably relate to what you just said, of all the companies that I invest, it will also be roughly 65 70% in U.S. and the rest 30% outside U.S. in my case. But in terms of pure money on money return, the big top three or four are outside U.S. Interesting. So I'm seeing the similar thing, probably on a much broader base. So that's why. And that's probably because, like you're saying, one is, of course, the starting point on valuation. The second, I think, which is very interesting is some of these companies are such a first mover into the geography that they pretty much control the dominant position. And the third thing is a lot of these economies are early stage of their growth. So the delta is growing very fast in most of these companies. Because, So just to give an example, one of my best performing company is what they call a building a stripe for Southeast Asia. Now, as these economies are getting more digitized and people are using all the digital services, so the market is expanding, this company is essentially building on top of that growth. Rising tide is obviously helping. And because they're first mover, they have a big market share. So all this combination with a low entry point really makes a good investment.
0: How often do you see that? It seems to me a lot of times you have, particularly in the emerging markets, a successful idea concept that has been taken and tried elsewhere. And then it often has a pretty amazing immediate product market fit. Is that a traditional business model idea that you're attracted to that you think is because I mean, this goes way back to reminds me of some companies were doing this in Europe, like 15, 20 years ago, on some of the ideas, and it doesn't always work out. But is that something that you think is a repeatable sort of concept that can get applied? Oh, definitely.
1: When if you look at most of these markets, the pitch is essentially X of Asia or Y of Africa. Or Z, you know, so it's so Uber's version of it for these markets. It's Amazon's versions of these markets. Stripe's version. That is very predominant across these geographies. And then nowadays, what's probably happening is we are seeing between one country to another. So let's say India has a very successful model, and we are seeing now that model getting replicated in Indonesia. Or Indonesia has a very successful model We that getting replicated in Africa and Nigeria. I didn't invest many in Europe, but I think the biggest delta I see in these markets is the huge demographics. So Indonesia has 260 million people. You're talking about a billion people in India and Africa as a continent. So when you're investing in digital services or companies which cater to such a large population or companies which are probably helping digitizing the SME businesses, you probably are Talking about a business which has a lot of runway because most of these people are underserved digitally. Most of these SMEs don't have access to a lot of these digital services. So there's a huge runway to growth for all these companies. And that's where I think is sort of the winning formula, so to speak, for these companies.
0: How many sort of generalizations can you make? Because like these geographies are so different and at various stages of developing, emerging sectors are different, rules and regulations. How challenging is it for the world to be your oyster? I feel like it's almost easier for some of these VCs. I only invest in SaaS companies in Boston. Good, that narrows your universe for you. You have the opposite challenge and it's good because it's a bigger pond to fish in, but it's sort of limitless on what's going on. So maybe walk through some of the geographies specifically, you mentioned you're everywhere, but that you focus on in particular or ones that you think are really the most interesting and opportune right now.
1: I think, purely if we go by country, I would say there are five countries where I'm seeing most of the deals coming through. One is Pakistan, which is a large population growing economy. Second is Indonesia, similar. I'm seeing a lot of demographics, similar demographics. Third would be, you would say, Nigeria within the Africa continent, similar demographics. And the good thing is that I spent four years in Nigeria, so I know that market quite well. Then, of course, you have the traditional India, which is a big enough market and, and growth. And within the Latin context, it's essentially either Colombia or Brazil. So these are the markets. And then, of course, from Bangladesh, I invested in a couple of companies where I'm seeing similar growth trajectory. Now, if you look at these five, six countries, the point you're making, it's not actually very different in terms of where they are. Probably each country is three to four years apart from other in terms of the digitization curve. But the number of people, the growth rate of the economy and the trajectory are pretty similar.
0: It's funny you mentioned that. I have a friend who I love to talk to about Angel list deals and others. And it's frustrating that you can't really talk about them publicly. The accreditation and and fundraising process is still a little frustrating. And in many ways, look, I get it, but we text about it, talk about it. And he always laughs because I'm drawn specifically, like the Pakistan deals are so consistently obvious to me. I see so many where I'm like, oh my God, this looks amazing. And I'm always sending him, I'm like, hey, I think I'm going to do this one. And he's like, dude, your hit rate, your batting average on the Pakistan is like, it just has to say Pakistan and you'll invest in it. (laughs) But it's funny because I agree, like exactly what you're talking about. A lot of the, and I don't want to jinx myself. Look, (laughs) until the cash hits the bank, none of this is finished, of course. But looking a lot of the opportunity sets in the deals that seem obvious to me where they're like, wow, this seems like a great opportunity, product market fit, revenues are going up on and on and on. Latin America, like you mentioned, a lot of the places you're talking about, it's exciting. Okay. So I'm agreeing with you too much. I love to play devil's advocate. It's a little (laughs) harder with you because I agree with you. But now what about sectors? So you mentioned, I think in the intro, you like payments. What else? Is that broadly FinTech or what's sort of the main sort of places you're attracted to
1: fintech obviously would <laughs> top the list and within fintech it's essentially i'm seeing two categories one is payments in general and the second would be SME digitization so anything that helps SMEs to manage their accounts better and books because you know it's broadly untapped so you have this father who had this small shop now the son is taking over who's more digitally savvy has an access to a smartphone wants to use that smartphone download apps and everything so he's a perfect customer to bring to this digital world. These would be the two big areas within the fintech space. The second would be logistics and marketplaces. And I think, again, you have some one or two big players in terms of marketplaces across these geographies that I mentioned. But then there are opportunities of some niche marketplaces across these geographies, which are for grab. Same with logistics, because a lot of these countries have an inefficiency in logistics which can be resolved through better execution. So that would be the second bucket. And the third one, which is quite interesting and which one would thought, I mean, I'm seeing EdTech coming up recently. There are a couple of EdTech companies which has really made a stride, I think mostly driven by, and you see that, right? So you have this Baiju in India, which is a account, and then you see the Baijus of X, Baijus of Y, you know, right? You have Katabuk, and you see Katabuk of X, Katabuk of Y, right? So yeah, and we are seeing some version of Baijus across these markets so the tech space. The two, three areas, as someone from emerging market, you thought, okay, these countries suffer or need a lot of improvement in health. You're seeing that these countries require a lot of support in agri-tech. And then, of course, edtech. So we are seeing tech coming up, but we are yet to see very big breakthrough companies in health and agriculture across these markets. As someone who's built a health tech business, I know it can be very difficult to monetize unlike a fintech and others. So there's no clear winner yet. And same with agri-tech. I think the reason for Agritech is mostly because the way the ownership and the decisions are made at a village level is very different in these countries. So to help them bring to the digital world requires a lot of bureaucracies and a lot of areas to go through. So that's really where Agritech is struggling. What we're seeing now in countries like Indonesia and others is that sort of like farm to table sort of concepts where people are bringing the supplies together and providing directly to consumers. So That model is getting started in a couple of countries with some success, but not a runway success yet.
0: It's funny, you mentioned a handful of places, Africa, while obviously more than just one country as a geography was something we started picking up a few years ago, where we saw the opportunity as being in many ways like a paradigm shift where it was going from really not so much to all of a sudden something very big quickly. And then, of course, over the last year you've seen the, I feel like the rest of the world kind of wake up to this kind of discussion. But how much of these various geographies has the culture of entrepreneurship, I mean, entrepreneurship's always been there. You go to a lot of emerging markets, like it's the best entrepreneurs in the world. But meaning specifically like startup style, Silicon Valley mindset and startups, how is that compared across these geographies? Like if you look at it and you're like, you know what? this amazing YC branch in Nigeria, but in Colombia, it's not. How does it kind of compare here in 2022 for a lot of these geographies that you're looking at?
1: So what's happening, we are seeing a reverse brain drain in many of these countries. So you are talking with founders who studied in U.S., worked for some startups in U.S., and coming back and building their companies. And a lot of these startup founders are very well networked, has a very strong network across the world. I continuously see founders from Nigeria talking with founders in Indonesia or, of course, in U.S. or in India. In a way, as diverse as wide <laughs> geographical distance they may seem, all these founders are quite well-connected. And that's probably the beauty of this whole startup thing, because people are very open to collaborate and talk with each other, So, which I don't see happened in the traditional brick and mortar businesses or manufacturing businesses before. So I'm seeing a lot of the exchange of ideas happening. But in terms of the question, in all these countries, you'll see a very group, of course, I should caveat that, that does not mean that locally homegrown people who studied locally didn't work out are not good founders. I'm saying some of them are really building very interesting companies, but then they're getting exposed to international accelerator program or to funds and others. But I would say many of the very successful companies in these places are done by founders who worked outside, came back and building it. So they're bringing their network with them.
0: It has this percolation effect where you have a success, they get liquidity, maybe not just founder, but maybe all the way down two or three levels of operators. And then they start to see investments and on and on and on. So it's like a snowball type of effect. And like you mentioned, you start to have some of the benefits, like startup templates happening, not just for ideas, but. All these people that went to Stanford together or on and on. And it's having this sort of jump effect. It feels like in some ways in a lot of these countries that have moved from almost like a yellow pen and paper style business opportunity to all of a sudden digital. And it just goes absolutely bonkers crazy. Some of the adoption metrics and revenue growth on some of these companies is really kind of mind boggling, which is awesome. It's super fun to see.
1: One thing I will probably, on the point that you just mentioned, one thing which probably lacks, I think, lacks especially in countries like, not really so much in India, but countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, and to some extent, Indonesia, but it you know, is the question of the liquidity. We are yet to see large exits in these markets. Indonesia just had a couple of SPACs of Tokopedia, and stuff like that. But So the idea that a big unicorn exit and early employers coming back into the ecosystem building as a company or investor, so we are yet to see that virtuous cycle working up here. But even then, I think the growth, some of these markets are so big that a lot of money is pouring in, and that is helping the growth. One of the thesis that I work on is being someone from this part of the world. If you look at the people who used to make decisions at a commercial level, at a regulatory level, and others are people who used to own a lot of lands at one time. They had the wealth and the power. Then it moved to the trading people, who used to do commodity trades in these markets, and then they accumulated wealth and power. Then it went to the manufacturing. So people who are owning in you know, a large factories and stuff. I think it's time that this wealth and power move to the technology entrepreneurs, which we have seen already happen in countries like US. And I think that's the fourth level of power and wealth shift will happen in these societies, and that will fundamentally transform how a lot of the society and a lot of the decision making happen in these countries. And I think we're seeing
0: that starting with that. And how much is like, the receptivity in the actual countries themselves? I know this is very country-specific as we look around the world. Some countries, the citizens and institutions are both, say, like you mentioned, more interested in owning real estate. In some countries, it's more of a stock culture. In some countries, it's gold and hard sort of assets. Is it starting to be... A scenario and do you get a feel for it where in, in a lot of the places indonesia and others where there's an interest in investing in startups in general like is that something you're starting to see or maybe that you have seen for a while or not at all
1: i would say it is starting to see in that category it's a long way from other markets like you mentioned it varies from countries within these geographies but i think these are very early stages i would still say most of the investments at a, at a corporate level, at a business level, as well as an individual level, I still into the traditional stocks and golds and plants et cetera. So startup investment is still very, very tiny in all this market. All
0: right. You have both invested in a gazillion companies as well as run a syndicate. You also are, I believe, in the process of rolling out a fund or have a fund as well. And by the way, I love the name My Asia VC. That's such a great, just right on the nose name. But Tell me how you think about these various channels of how to reach both investors and companies. Like what's the feeling on using all those different sort of routes for fundraising as well as allocation?
1: So uh, just to give you a, a bit of a context on my syndicate journey, it all started in June 2020 when we were in the early days of covid So, I was stuck in a room (laughs) trying to decide what to do. And then I thought, okay, let me launch a fund. But then I thought, uh, with this COVID, reaching out to LPs, that would be a good idea. So, let me start a syndicate because I was an active investor through different syndicates on Angelus. So, I thought, okay, let me set up my syndicate. So, I did my first deal in June 2020, around June 2020, so roughly two years now. And the syndicate turned out to be quite a bit of success, probably because of the timing. Everyone was stuck, everyone was investing. Within the last two years, we deployed roughly $50 million, so almost $25 million each year. If you think of a typical fund which invests five years, so that's roughly $125 million of a fund, uh, you think that way. And essentially, it's a one person entity. I don't have any back office, no analysts, nothing. So that's what's happening. And quite a large LP, 2000 plus LPs and staff of them, quite a few of them are very active. So that's the syndicate bit. And then, beginning of this year, I saw a lot of interest, which actually we, we didn't touch in terms of sector. A lot of interest in Web three, so I started a Web three syndicate in I think in February of this year. So in the last two months, it's already deployed roughly three and a half four million dollars, quite a few deals. So these are the two syndicates. Now, the way I approach syndicate is so I have seen a couple of syndicates were very sector stage specific syndicates. So. You know, syndicates which say that, okay, we'll only invest in climate at seed stage or we'll only invest in fintech at that stage. The way I run my syndicate is a sector stage, geography agnostic. So very general platform where I bring in deals that I like and which I think would create value. So it can be as early as pre-seed to as late as pre-IPOs. So you know, I do a lot of secondary deals. So it's a very wide ranging. Of course, the geography-wise is very wide. Uh, the sector-wise is from fintech to AgriTech, so it's a very wide ranging. So the way I see syndicate is a more like a buffer sort of thing where I bring deals. LP is depending on their requirement of whether they want to do a LPs. So I bring the deals, which I'm really convinced about, given all the business models and the mental model, I leave it up to LP whether that fits to what he or she wants to do. So if some LP wants to create exposure in FinTech, in emerging markets, or in EdTech, in Latin or in Asia or Africa, you know, so depending on. So I leave it up to the LPs to decide which sector segment they want in invest. So that's my thinking of the syndicate. Then what I started doing is, if you think syndicate has a big horizontal line, I want to create a vertical funds, which are specifically focused on different parts of those deal flow. So what I did first is I set up a rolling fund, which is last year, because I was coming across companies who were not very willing to do syndication. So they think, oh, you know, you're sending this to so many people, we don't know who these people are. I don't want to share my data. I want a commitment up front of how much you're going to invest. So I started the rolling fund essentially to cater to those companies, which I cannot syndicate. And then of course, when the YC deal happened. <laughs> Not this year. Last year, what happened is I was talking with the YC companies. And by the time I tell them, oh, the syndicate has been approved, I'm going to launch it. There's no we are full. <laughs> so, but after two days of syndicate launch, they said, oh, sorry, sorry, we are full. We can't take any more funding. Then I said, OK, let me set up a YC fund. So this is the first time I did it. a YC determine into fund, essentially, to be able to decide and write checks on the spot. So that's the second one. The third one I set up is a Web3 fund. When the Web3 syndicate started, I'm seeing a lot of interest in Web3, as well as I'm seeing people, again, sort of a similar question, because Web3 is now so hot that a lot of times the deals are just getting built before even we started the syndicate. So I set up this Web3 fund. Now, the fourth one that I'm working on is the South Asia, Southeast Asia fund, which essentially will focus all the deals in this part of the world. The way I see it is, as I launch these verticals of funds, that part of the syndicate is slowly moving away and will only go through the fund in most of the cases. So the South Asia, Southeast Asia would take a big chunk of it. So that's the fund I'm working on.
0: Awesome, man. Tell me a little bit about the deal flow. And probably now it's well-established how you find a lot of the companies, but also give us a little insight into the early days too, like how, obviously you've invested in many companies over the years, but now as a lead, as someone who is bringing these, what has that experience been like? And how do you source all these deals in which you're finding and then investing in?
1: So this one, of course, is like you're saying, the investors or the founders where I already invested. Their friend is working, so there's a lot of companies and they say, I can study it. My friend is launching a similar company. I told him about you. Would you like to talk with him? So that's a sort of one source of deal flow. The second is essentially people who are LPs in the company, in the syndicate. So <laughs> a lot of LPs who keep referring deals, that there's X or Y, and they keep referring deals. So that's the second source. The third, And source that's cool, is, just
0: to interrupt you for a second, but that's a fascinating resource that not only are they investors, but they're also helping. We always talk about, like with companies... This concept of inclusive capitalism, but also from a fund manager standpoint of having a resource of investors and not utilizing it, that's crazy to me. And I think some people are just reluctant to do it. They're nervous or afraid. But as you mentioned, like you have thousands of investors that not only are giving money, but also giving you insight and signal as well.
1: Oh, definitely. The number of deals that I'm getting through the LP base that I have is phenomenal. So I have almost like 1,000 scout or 2,000 scout who are active LPs. So they're constantly different deals. So that's the second one. The third one, of course, is funds where I know a couple of those partners and they keep different deals. They're investing in a company and they have a small space and they say, will you be willing to run a syndicate? So that's the third one. The fourth one is essentially where I read about some company on TechCrunch or something. This looks cool. Let me reach out to the founder through LinkedIn and somewhere else and get connected so these are the four pillars
0: how often are they receptive to that is that something where a lot of the times they're like okay let's chat or are they just like dude what
1: actually uh, interestingly i get a good feedback i mean feedback in the sense that almost i would say 75 80 percent of the cases the founder replied. So probably if they go to the website to look at 20, <laughs> i give some link and then they reply of those who reply some of the cases they have already closed around because it's already everything in other cases they say yeah going to launch it or do extension and stuff. So it's of the cases.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, it's going to be exciting to watch all these avenues develop. If you're willing to, I would love to hear, mainly as almost like a case study sort of insight, any of the companies that you've invested in over the years that you think are particularly insightful. Where you're like, hey, I invest in this company and this geography and this kind of illustrates how I was thinking about XYZ. Is there anything that comes to mind that you think is... Pretty good insight into the way you think?
1: So one would be a company called ShopUp in Bangladesh. So this is a company which I invested very early, almost at a seed stage. So they essentially started, I don't know whether you know of a company called Udan mm-hmm. in India. So Udan is a B2B marketplace. ShopUp essentially started as a Shopify. So there are a lot of people in Bangladesh who use Facebook to sell items. From housewives and others, they use this to sell clothes and stuff. So ShopUp started being the Shopify of Bangladesh, giving these people front door digital store and stuff like that, and taking care of their back-end logistics. From there, it started to become sort of like a Udan concept with B2B marketplaces for all these people to buy and sell things and stuff. And from there, they have also now started a big logistics arm because they found that logistics needs improvement. Then, of course, there's a FinTech play for buy now, pay later, which is coming in. So when I first heard of ShopUp when I invested, it was more from a concept of, okay, let's invest in the Shopify of Bangladesh, because I could see the number of people who are doing their businesses from home. And then, of course, it evolved to the extent that they did probably one of the largest series B in the region, given that from Bangladesh, which has been relatively ignored to that extent. And you pretty much name from Sequoia to Tiger to pretty much name all the tier one VCs we joined. This was one of the big stories
0: out of coming out of Bangladesh. So that's why. Well, I mean, it's fun, like, even talking about Bangladesh, the size of some of these emerging markets. And obviously, India is a whole other level. I mean, I remember talking to someone years ago on the podcast, and there was just like a statistic, which was India has more people playing fantasy sports than in the U.S. I'm like, how is that possible? The U.S. is such a. And they're like, there's more fantasy sports people on like cricket, just because there's so many people at Oregon And you start to like think about some of the opportunities in particularly countries that have huge population, but not as developed. And the numbers all of a sudden get very interesting quick.
1: I'm very bullish on the next wave of wave Three companies coming out of India, because there was a bit of regulatory uncertainty, which seemed to be clear now with the government coming out with a very clear tax jurisdictions on what would be taxed or not. I think that's going to be a big space. Like you're saying, fantasy leagues and stuff, which was really coming. And there's a big sports community in India and the same in Indonesia. And I think built on that, there'll be a big wave of Web3 companies coming out of that region.
0: All right. Let's hear another one, man. What's another interesting company and what are they up to? I think
1: the second one would be a company called Zendit, which I was mentioning previously. So, again, you know, I'm an early investor and advisor to the company. It's one of the YC top 100 companies that they publish. When I first heard of the idea being pitched to me across a table, it was more of, okay, you know, we want to facilitate payment of all these small mob and pop shops in Indonesian economy. And then, of course, they started building that one-click payment options and stuff like that. And then it's exploded as the digitization and the usage of digital services exploded in the country. Now, of course, it started in Indonesia, expanded to other markets within Southeast Asia. It's now a unicorn. It reached unicorn last year. So again, an explosion Huge sort of transition happening to the company, a really big business. I look at some of the numbers, which is staggering, and I think it will only continue to grow. It has a long runway in the coming years. So that will be the second one.
0: I could listen to these all day, but give me a third while we're at it. Let's do the <laughs> Trinity. What's the third one?
1: So the first two are the ones I did not syndicate because, yeah, it was happened before I syndicated. The third one is one which I syndicated, is a company called Spinball. And now it is getting very popular, the breaks of the world, that yeah. version of it, right? So. SpendMo again, a YC company which has syndicated. And then they, of course, started providing the accounting backend services to help all these mom and pops, or the mom and pop shop, SMEs to better manage their accounts and everything. And then from there, they started issuing corporate cards to better manage the expenses. So again, SpendMo is one of the top YC lists and et cetera. Good uh, geography is that? In the Southeast Asia, but based out of Singapore. Yeah.
0: The bad news is the other 1,397 companies are going to be like, what the hell? You didn't mention me? These are the three <laughs> you picked. This is the problem with having too many children, man. you got too many kids under the household.
1: Some of these companies, I mean, I mostly mentioned from Asia, but some of these companies from Africa are phenomenal. I invest in some of these African companies. There's one which is called Relief. Uh, so the reason I mentioned Relief, it's a very different. That they're trying to streamline the supply chain of palm oil which is a big business at that part of the world. And you don't see a
0: typical startup. It's a big business in this part of the world. And it was in the news today where, I forget which country it was, just announced they were banning exports because of all the supply chains and everything. And palm oil, I forget where I'll look it up, but tell me more.
1: One of the companies is out of Nigeria, Lagos, because it's a big palm oil producing country. So they're trying to streamline the palm oil production from a very agricultural level. To where to manufacturing level how to streamline that and reduce the waste it's a very hard problem to crack and it's not those typical financial services or the web 3 companies they're different so there are some companies like that there are quite a few companies in renewable energy space across these markets which is quite interesting solving the hard problems and stuff and similar I'm
0: having a little fomo because I remember seeing this palm oil startup and I was like this is Outside of my wheelhouse, about as far as it can get. And I come from like a farming background, and I love anything farming related. And I hemmed and hawed about this one for. Usually for me, it's an instant no. Some I'll do some due diligence. This one I was like spending an inordinate amount of time with, and didn't do it much to my probably eventual regret. But that was one I remember reading that I must have read that write up probably fifteen times on the deck, and I was like, man, this seems really thoughtful and smart. And then I'll get it on the next round as we go through <laughs> Definitely. one of yours, which fits like a much more traditional startup US based that I had actually seen elsewhere first ordered the product. And this is NutriSense. So shout out NutriSense. And with any of the product or services that I can actually try out, I use them just to see because often I'm like, "Oh, this is terrible. This food is disgusting why would anyone use this? And so I had tried out the NutriSense and I was like, oh, this is very clear and obvious. This is gonna be huge. And then was just waiting to see somewhere this come across my <laughs> desk. And so thank you, because that one I love. And is one that listeners, it's a blood glucose monitor. You've probably heard me talk about it before. It's pretty cool. I think it's gonna be a rocket ship. So, or it is oh, yeah. a rocket ship and I think it's gonna- yeah. Going very fast. You don't have to say the names, but you got any 100 baggers on paper yet out of that 1,400 investments?
1: So, quite a few. So, I think it has 26 unicorns or so, right? We it correctly. I mean, a lot of these are not through my syndicate, through investment, other syndicates, et cetera. Within my syndicate, yeah, I mean, there are quite a few 100x <laughs> ex- because my syndicate is two years old.
0: You're young. You're a toddler at this point, just learning how yeah. to walk and crawl at this point. But how many of you syndicated to date so far?
1: Around 230 games. So
0: That's incredible.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, everything is in.
0: <laughs> You're like a one man 500 startup. Nothing
1: below 100.
0: <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, my God. I love it. But it's funny. I mean, in a world of power laws, like it's got to be a numbers game.
1: That's where I think the syndicate is a bit tricky from LP angle, because these are essentially investing in one company rather than a pool of lead, then getting either the upside or downside based on the single company performance. And I think that's where the challenge is from an LP perspective is for a syndicate lead like me, where you have a volume of deals coming through, is to decide which one you want to invest. So myself as a overall syndicate might do very well, given the number of deals. And there's always, within that two-year syndicate, I'm seeing two, three companies really breaking up, probably will reach 100x very soon. And then, of course, then the question is that whether the LP were into those two, three companies, and that's where I think the syndicate versus the fund dynamics come through, part segregates the and that's why I'm building this fund vertical more to essentially get exposure to my selective deal flows and theater all this stuff and stuff. So.
0: So talk to the investors out there who are individuals who haven't invested in 1400 companies yet. So talk about like some of your advice, like you want to give some people that are either newish, interested in angel investing, even some of the pros too. What are some of the lessons learned? Some of the things you maybe wish you knew a few years ago, or you changed your mind on all these sort of things. What's some perspective on somebody who's been at it for almost a decade in the trenches and now doing it for a career as well?
1: So I think almost all the investors have heard that, but it's more about creating the portfolios. It's not about one or five companies, ideally for 35, 50, 40 companies, depending on the disposable income that individual has. So that's one. Second, of course, is what I've seen is I've seen my good decisions, the decisions that I really, where I had getting outside returns is where I had taken time. I know the syndicate sometimes creates this FOMO thing. It's getting close, the last check, and all those stuff. So it creates an unnecessary FOMO in the system. My suggestion would be to investors to really take time and be convinced that he or she wants to really invest in that company. So I would suggest to reach out to the syndicate lead to save and ask questions. So I think that's important because I don't know that, I mean, <laughs> investment is like quite a bit of luck,
0: <laughs> despite whatever we say. If you could go back eight years ago, I wish once I got to the go, no-go decision on the investment, so I'm going to invest, that I could then rank it maybe... One, two, three. One being I have like utmost confidence. Two being like, I think this may work. And three being like, eh, or whatever the system would be, one to 10. I'd be curious to see how much correlation there is between eventual outcome. I think it'd be different. I think it'd be different between all the deals. Because like, there's certain plenty I see where I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's spending a gazillion dollars, like yada, yada. Versus the ones where I'm like, okay, this seems like it has a chance. Anyway, I don't know the answer to that. How much correlation do you think you would see with yours? Do you think if your initial optimism versus kind of the eventual outcome, do you think it's a high R-squared regression or something where it's like a little more randomness involved?
1: I think there is some randomness, but the three examples that I gave of the companies which are all going to be unicorn are already unicorn. These three cases, I probably made decision within the first 10, 15 minutes after talking with the founder. Because I talked to the founder, I found like, okay, this is going to work. I like this guy, that I like the space that I invested. And there are some of the, I mean, <laughs> there are cases where it didn't, but all these three cases, I turned out to be good. And that's because mostly the the way the whole set of investments work. So you need one winner in a pool to make it work. So that's how it helps. I have seen companies where I let it go, which ultimately turned out to be a big winner, is essentially because I was overthinking it. I was overthinking, okay, should I invest, should I, and then let it go. And then ultimately, those turned out to be big winners. And that's probably a sort of memory thing because if we create those decisions and we probably remember those regrets more than the winner. So whenever I see an next company doing very good and I had a chance to invest and didn't, I said, ah, <laughs> so those happen, yeah. But if you create a portfolio of 50, 60 companies, it's very likely that you'll get more than principal 2X, 3X, depending on the winner set.
0: So as we look out to the future, are there any ideas in particular, you're just chomping at the bit to fund where you're like, man, I'm just waiting for the right founder, the right opportunity in this space or any areas that like you're really particularly industries, whatever business models that you're really excited about in here in 2022?
1: I think one of the areas which would be good, I'm starting to invest in fact, the fund that I raised up on the Web3 side is to Invest in companies which are more building the infrastructure of Web3 rather than all these B2C apps and etc like that. So the DAO is a big concept now, which is coming up. So anything that is helping to DAO manage better. So if you're considering DAO as an office, what is the MS office of DAO? What is the Slack of DAO? What is the team of DAO? Anything that is helping that DAO to operate, I think is going to be big. And I'm actively looking for companies in that space to invest. So I think that's one area. The second area of the similar thing would be In this part of the world, in the emerging markets, I'm always looking for big agri-tech companies, agriculture companies, which I'm really convinced to invest, because I think that's a big opportunity, but you have to see a good founder set there. So that would be the second one, purely from a web-to-angle. And of course, purely from a moonshot angle, I haven't done many in space, but I think that, again, is a big one. I don't see many space companies coming out from this part of the world because the infrastructure is not there. But... From U.S. and others, other investors, other syndicating companies like Exium Space and others, but I think there are more opportunities there.
0: There's certain signals you pick up on where you're just like, "Wow, it's having its moment," and space seems to be one that's going to be exciting for years to come as we start making it to Mars and on out. We come out of COVID, like you said, you teleport back to pre-COVID and say, man, all of a sudden you've got all these syndicates and funds and different ideas going on. Anything got you curious, confused, excited, nervous as we look out to the horizon for you? I mean, what's the eventual build out of this? You seem pretty busy. You're going to add some team members at some point. Do you have a support staff or is this going to remain a one-man show for a while?
1: So for me- just a caveat there. So Silicon everything is one venture, but the two funds, so one is this Web3 fund, where I have a partner now, on the MyAsia VC fund, which I'm planning to do South Asia, South Asia, I already have founders, but I mean, so partners, because I think these are the more conventional things to create built infrastructure on that. I mean, COVID has been a boon for many. I regret not investing in some of the companies in early COVID days that you know from buying the ape. <laughs> to others. <laughs> so I was like, okay. But anyway, so there are quite a bit of mistakes there. But I'm really grateful of the way it turned out in terms of going to full-time into this investment. And I see, if you look at some of the companies which really shine, I don't know whether you have seen companies like Hopping and others, which is now being traded at a significant discount at secondary level. So a lot of the companies which really came out at that stage may get challenged in the coming days in subsequent funding. We are seeing that reflected in public markets, and I'm sure it will reflect in private markets too. So we'll probably go through a difficult time for the next 12 months or so, depending how the whole Ukraine, the whole inflation, the whole COVID situation in China, everything shapes up. So there's a quite a bit of uncertainty out there. I'm a very optimistic technology investor,s And I think with this on a longer enough time frame, and as a startup investor, I'm always looking at five years, 10 years time frame. I think we are in a good position. So I want to do this more with all the funds in the pipeline. I want to really build a sort of infrastructure. The way I see my investment portfolio over time is we'll have the syndicate to do more and more specific deals, which doesn't fall into the fund thesis, and then have this fund. So I have a Web3 fund, I have an Asia fund. I will probably at some stage do an Africa fund and stuff. And for each of this fund, I'll probably bring in partners who are more expert in that space to do that.
0: Awesome. As you look back on these thousand plus investments and others, by the way, we don't have to narrow it down to this. What's been the most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between? Anything come to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the memorable one would be the one that I mentioned. What is where we invested in companies very early, it's sort of like a first or second check and really been involved. There you get to really unlike being part of another syndicate when you're writing your personal check directly into the company and see it grows. Especially in markets.
0: You got to pick one though. Yeah. (laughs) I'm holding your feet to the fire and it doesn't have to be the best. It could be the worst, but something that is memorable, seared into your brain. I can't even remember my first angel investment. I'm going to have to look that up.
1: The one that I mentioned before, the one which brought me to the investment in the first place. So that company ultimately didn't end up well. So
0: (laughs) You said it did or did not end up well?
1: It did not end up well.
0: Uh, <laughs> but it
1: started my journey.
0: So <laughs> that's part of it, man. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny because you talk to everyone in this world, and the expectation is that many, if not the majority, will fail or not do much. Now you talk to every startup founder, and they realize that stat. They say, "I understand most startups will fail, but mine won't." It's, it's great cognitive dissonance. But like, you have to have that confidence. And we call it like to call it naive optimism. But part of it, I think, for a lot of people who are just starting out angel investing, that part is hard for them to see the companies not do well and fail. Because a lot of these founders you're cheering for, and it's a struggle. My favorites are the ones that sort of fail with class and integrity. They keep updating and say, look, this sucks. But it's not working and we're losing money and we're going to go bankrupt, but like are honest about it. And I would invest in all those, again, like those founders, probably more so as they have the scars. The ones that really frustrate me are the ones that go full ostrich, just head in the sand, pretend like nothing's happening, but it's hard. It's a very emotional thing. And so that's why it's a numbers game as well, though, is from the investor side.
1: One of the things that now that I have a not the companies I invested, uh, you know, further syndicate personally, but the companies I syndicated in the last few years. And what I'm seeing is there are clearly three groups emerging. One is, of course, the founders who are they're doing very good. You can see the valuations of the and the numbers, balance sheet numbers and everything. So that's very strong. So the second one I'm seeing where the some of these companies are going a bit silent and they're reporting in others, but they're struggling. And we know that they're struggling, but they keep you updated of what they're doing. And then the third group are essentially, like I are saying, sort of going silent and it takes some time to follow up and see where they are. There is another, I sometimes the question of integrity, that's very interesting to me because there have been, I think, one company in my portfolio where, and you have pretty much all the tier one investors there, they are now looking into the company accounting. So (laughs) that was quite an interesting thing for me. Sometimes you look at all these investors, so the institution investors on the capital, and they're on the board because I'm not in the board. The check is too small. And then you have these issues coming up. That was quite an interesting one.
0: Awesome. What's the best place? People want to reach out to you for A, to sign up for your syndicate, B, to send you big checks for your fund, C, to send you deals, and lastly, to potentially join you as a partner in one of these new funds. What's the best place to go?
1: LinkedIn. So, I have LinkedIn. and quite open. LinkedIn and Twitter. Those will be the two big ones. And then, of course, Angel is, I don't know, many of them, if they're accredited, then go to Angel syndicate. But yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter be the two, but I'm always there.
0: Don't forget myasiavc2.com.
1: So, that website, it was good. So, I'm just revamping the website with the new fund details. So, it's a bit work in progress. Some of the numbers are pretty, you know, it's not fully baked yet.
0: Hey, no problem. We'll add all the links to the show notes. This was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Looking forward to seeing you in the real world one day. I've never been to Indonesia, so I'm going to hit you up to be my Jim Rogers-style startup tour guide when I make it over there. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Meb. It was a pleasure.
0: Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast.